you know, Stalin and the Nazis were these welfare state types. Uh, One of us is a stand-up comic. Can you tell who it is, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> Peckerwood Brick. Um. <laughs> but the problem. <laughs> Oh my god, that's like, I could use that to teach the whole arc. Do we have any kind of archaeological evidence, any kind of, any kind of other corroborating evidence? This is a Geek History of Time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. I'm Ed Blaylock, I'm a new father with a 10-month-old son. I'm a world history teacher at the seventh grade level, and I have been a geek uh, at least since the sixth grade uh, when I got a hold of a copy of Have Spacesuit Will Travel by Robert A. Heinlein, um, and, and that has informed not only me being a geek, but the flavor of my geekery ever since. Uh, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a 40-year-old Latin teacher, used to be a social science teacher, a father of two, one who's nine, one who's six. Uh, we're currently playing Dungeons & Dragons together. Uh, I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons since I was at least six, uh, all the way back in the days where I didn't even understand what was going on. Um, uh, let's see, I don't know. The the, the best example of uh, that I can think of, of what a geek I was uh, growing up at a young age would be um, that I really started punning in first grade. There was a thing where you could uh, you had to fill in the the talking bubbles mm-hmm. of the yeah. different characters talking to each other, and there yeah. was a wor- there was a a bird talking to a hole in the ground, yeah, and then a bird talking to the hole in the ground, and then the bird talking to the hole in the ground. And the final panel, the worm came up, but it was wearing a, a knight's helmet. Okay, and so it was a hey worm, come out and play. Uh, no. Hey, Worm, your friends are all dying out here. I was in first grade. Uh, I don't believe you. It's like Worm War One out here. And he pops up. Where are they? I will kill those Nazis. Nice. Yeah, so I was... That's, uh, that's indicative of a number of things about the course <laughs> your life was going to take from there. Boy, howdy. Um, so what we're saying here is that your penchant for punnery... Uh, has has been a chronic condition that you were unfortunately infected with at a very young age. It's as old as my hatred of fascism, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, you cannot even separate older. them. Yeah, no, no, and, <laughs> they're intertwined. And, and your, your your puns kill Nazis, which mm. isn't surprising. Cause These they puns kill, kill lots Nazis. Of, lots of other people. Oh my god, I am the Arlo Guthrie of, of punning. punning. <laughs> I don't. I, I feel. Or the Woody Guthrie like, of punning. I, I feel like I somehow want to speak up in Woody Guthrie's defense after that kind of comparison. But <laughs> yes. So, um, what what would you say mm-hmm. was your first exposure uh-huh. that you can remember to Japanese culture? Ooh. Um, in and of itself, like. As a thing that I, as a child, was able to distinguish from Chinese culture. Mm. I grew up in San Francisco okay. at that time in my life. So was, I was at a school. It was almost all Asian. Oh, wow. And then there was me. Like <laughs> I, I was literally one of five kids who, who were white in the school. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So, uh, like, I mean, I'd, I'd run around town mm-hmm. and, like, I'd hit Chinatown all the time, down on Clement Street. There yeah. would be all these places where you could buy, like, sticky rice. Japanese Hell culture. Yes, sticky rice, uh-huh. by the way. Japanese culture. I don't remember interacting with Japanese culture except for when I went to Japantown in San Francisco on a mm-hmm. field trip. We were such a Chinese-heavy school that... Yeah, that that was about it. But in terms of like pop culture type mm-hmm. stuff, okay, throwing stars, which it would have to be throwing stars. Entirely too much sense. Yeah, in I know. The context of what we were talking about last episode. I know. I'm kind That's, of ashamed of that, but that, it's true. Well, you know, you you are. If you're ashamed of that, then an awful lot of white boys uh, from America of our age ought to be ashamed of that. I, I think I'm okay saying that. Yeah. Even. I think, <laughs> but in fairness, know, like that's what I was exposed to. Yeah. Like, that's, well, that was, yeah. that was, yeah. And, and again, so, talking, yeah. because to, to recap, yeah. Uh, you know, the reason I bring that up is because talking about, you know, Battletech and its relationship to, mm-hmm. you know, our, and, and it's lore and its relationship to our national perception right. of, of Japanese culture. I think that's, that's, a starting point. That's that's something we can talk about, and mm-hmm. and that was the time period when we had, God damn you for bringing it up, but Jim <laughs> Cotta and a whole <laughs> and a whole host of just schlocky bad white guy as ninja ninja movies. Well, it was and Canon, so, and so Shuriken, Canon Studios, the by the thing. way. Yeah. Oh yeah. That that yeah. was why it was those two brothers. <laughs> they're the ones that came up with Breaking. And then they were like, oh my god, this made money, and it's actually good. And then they did Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo. Nice. Like, yeah. they were just yeah. flooding the market with shit with, movies. With, with crap. And every once in a while, yeah. something would actually hit. Yeah, well, you know, uh, you you may, you, what was it, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Right. And so they were just like, you know what, throw everything at the wall. Nice. I like the you Lee know. Harvey Oswald quote. That's good. Oh, 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 hey. Too soon, <laughs> too soon, dude. Too soon. So, um, but you know, we 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 ended last time mm-hmm. uh, talking specifically about anime, mm-hmm. which uh, I I actually have to say I think my first exposure to Japanese culture struck like a ninja in the night. In that I did not realize it mm-hmm. was Japanese culture when I was exposed to it. Okay. Uh, in that, uh, do you remember mm-hmm. the Rankin Bass animated version of The Hobbit or The Return of the King? Is that the one that's rotoscoped? No, that's Ralph Bakshi. Oh, no, no, I do remember this. It was anime style. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. That, that was... It was creepy. At, if you... It, it was. Anime always creeps me out. Okay. It right. always it's, has. It's, it's the big eyes. It the is. It, yeah. yeah. Is, uh, am I watching lemurs? What's going on? Yeah, some of the stylistic conventions yeah. Yeah. Are, are off-putting to those of us who who are more versed in, in other in other styles. That's very generous but, to say. Yeah, well, yeah, um, I think it's it's a fair way to say it. Yeah, uh, but yeah, know, without, I do remember that having too much cultural chauvinism involved. Yeah. But um, you know, the, the thing is, if you look at the credits, and this even mm-hmm. struck me when I was. You know, seven or however old I was when I saw it. Uh-huh. Uh huh. If you look at the credits, all the names at the end of it uh-huh. are Japanese names. All all right. of the animators, all of the right. main artists, all you know, 
And it's because Rankin Bass got mm-hmm. a hold of the rights to the show, mm-hmm. and they said, "Okay, what are we going to do? We're going to make we're going to make a cartoon. Okay, mm-hmm. how can we how can we farm this out? And you know, because we're a production company, we're not right. actually an animation company. What are we going to do? And they farmed it out to a Japanese animation studio, and they sent them the script, mm-hmm. and the animators did what they did, and they sent it back, and they got John Huston to voice act <laughs> for Gandalf. Which, by the way, um." If, if anybody could voice act that character, mm-hmm. I don't think you could do better than John Huston as, as, as yeah. somebody embodying the voice without being the actual physical presence on right, the camera. Right. I, I really don't think you could outdo him ever. And so, you know, anime mm-hmm. was, was something that I got exposed to through this kind of, kind of sub rosa. I wasn't really aware. Right. I just knew it looked really different from, from the other cartoons. It was I like knew. an animated judo. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was, it, it took, it took my own preconceptions and flung me with them. Right. And so, and then when I got a little older, uh-huh. um, I saw the transformers Uh huh. and I saw, uh, uh, well, Trans or Z, but that wasn't one that really struck me. But Voltron, Voltron, yeah, which was which was itself a a redub. It was we're going right. to take the action, all all the animation, all the scripts, all that stuff. We're going to take it over here. We're going to cut a few things out, sure, because there are places where the princess gets naked in the original series, and we can't oh. show that to kids in the United States. Sure, sure. And you know we're gonna we're gonna downplay some of the blood and violence um, because. We can't show that to kids in the United States. Even though we're more okay showing that to kids in the United States, than, oh, yeah. you know, bare boobs. But oh, yeah. you know, and and so we're gonna we're gonna tone it down a little bit, you know, kidify it somewhat. But then we're gonna take it and throw it out there, right? And, and kids are gonna lap it up, and I did. And then Robotech, uh-huh. which I never got on board for. Fir- really, I really didn't. Yeah, again, anime like okay, the style it was, it was the st- pulled me just, out. Just the okay, it really was like, I was. Hair. Yeah, the hair, well, uh, among which other was things, the big thing. It was, it was, I mean, for it me, was, for me, yeah. Rick Hunter's hair was like, how do you do that? Yeah. Like you're wearing a helmet because my dad was a pilot, right? <laughs> my dad was a naval aviator. He right. came home having worn a helmet for right. eight hours or right. more, and his hair never stood up like that. It was he'd been wearing a helmet for that long. I, how do you do that? So I think know, I think what got me about it, to be honest, yeah. the lack of nose. Yeah, depending on the angle. Yeah, yeah, and, and the, it was yeah, the, the facial visual, features. Yeah, the visual, the, the visual conventions of the form. Right, with the nose being just everything so round. Yeah, on the face, and and because I remember thinking, watching GI Joe, well, these eyes make a lot more sense to me, and they're more rectangular. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I know. <clears throat> Um, but yeah. <laughs> but it yeah, was you, that you seemed went to school with a lot of Chinese kids. I did. Said, okay, I did. Just, yeah, throw huh, that out there. Interesting. Yeah, but noting, yeah, I, I really... Noting that for the record. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think of that. But, but by the way, I wound yeah. up going to school with a bunch of Chinese kids and a bunch of Japanese kids. Oh, you're in Hawaii. A few Korean kids. Yeah, I'm going to get into that in a second. Yeah. And and talk about exposure to Japanese culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest exposure I had to Japanese culture was mm-hmm. if you called a Japanese kid Chinese, you were going to get your ass kicked. So you learn quick. And vice versa. Yeah. So anyway... But moving on. So you mentioned me spending mm-hmm. time in Hawaii. Yes. So from 1983 to 1986, uh, my dad's last tour of duty in the Navy. He uh-huh. was assigned to a squadron VC-1. Okay. Um, which I could talk about more, but it's ancillary to what we're talking about. 
And so I, I had the opportunity as between the ages of 8 and 11 mm-hmm. to live in a place where there was a really significant, still is, of course, a really significant Japanese community. Yeah. And uh, not only that, but it's literally, you know, halfway between the United States and Japan. And so there's a lot more uh, influx of, sure. of stuff directly from Japan. And so it was during this time period when this was when Japanese stuff was was becoming mainstream anyway, mm-hmm. even in you know the middle America. And right. so being in Hawaii, I was kind of on on the bleeding edge of that whole thing, seeing sure. stuff months before anybody back in the states was going to. You were the test market. I we in many ways we kind of were. Mm-hmm. And so Robotech, all right, was you know which didn't catch on for you all my friends loved it oh yeah Yeah. well because and and the big deal you know for me and my friends was roy foker got killed now roy foker is an important character in the series he's Uh the mentor figure to our hero rick hunter and he winds up he he gets he gets killed i remember my friends i remember my friends talking about that i also remember the original guy for the blue lion died mm-hmm. as well and i remember yeah, yeah one of the, the lines it was the original it was, guy for it was the, the blue for lion the black, the black lion actually but, oh he was but yeah okay yeah. well i thought it was the guy for the blue lion because then the princess took over as the blue lion oh wait yeah shit but either way yeah um yeah, 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 yeah. what yeah. struck me about that was even then i knew i'm like whoa shit nobody dies in gi joe yeah like, they actually well, yeah. killed characters. Yeah. And so when my friends <clears throat> talked about Robotech, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah Roy so, dies. So it was, so it was, so it was heightened, yeah. heightened level of drama because, oh, my God, you actually have Death is a death. thing. Death yeah. is a thing. And mm-hmm. in the case of Roy Foker, uh-huh. it was a huge big deal at the time in okay. American media that when Roy Foker died, uh-huh. the storyline was, you know, he goes out and he gets into a, into a you know, a... Uh, dogfight with you know an, an alien invasion ace you sure know, and he's he's our human ace you know they get into this fight and he his his uh valkyrie gets shot up mm-hmm. uh but he manages to limp it home and land and mm-hmm. you know, he defeats the other pilot and he gets out of it and he's you know breathing kind of heavily and whatever and uh you know everybody's you know roy are you all right yeah i know i'm fine i just i gotta go see claudia Claudia is his love interest, his girlfriend. Okay. Also notable in that this was a Japanese series. Uh-huh. Roy Foker, of course, is German. Blonde hair, blue eyes, you mm-hmm. know, Aryan ideal. His girlfriend, Claudia, is African-American. Oh. Which was okay. the first time, like, that was portrayed right. as a relationship thing. And, of course, it was like, well, no, that's his girlfriend. That's like whatever. And right. it wasn't even, I mean, you know, it was it was remarkably progressive for the time, but it wasn't even anything. It was just like it was they background noise. Yeah, and they weren't pointing it out, going, yeah, look how like, woke hey, we hey, are. Hey, yeah. Right. Well, because they really weren't. Because in the original, yeah, the, the original series is full of all kinds of negative racial stereotypes. Because uh, the Japanese are just as racist as anybody else, and in some cases more so. Being on an island. But, yeah. So, but anyway... Foker leaves mm-hmm. and and you know uh, goes to Claudia's apartment mm-hmm. and sees her, gets through the front door. Mm-hmm. She says, "Hey, wait a minute! I got to go into the other room." She leaves mm-hmm. and hears a thud, and she comes running into the room to find him lying on the floor with the back of his uniform <clears throat> soaked in blood. Oh, 
and he he had been he he'd been hit by you know cannon rounds whatever right and you know they then they then cut back to the technicians working on his Valkyrie his giant oh. robot spaceship and they see that there were places where his armored cockpit seat had been punctured, punctured. right and they immediately go oh my god we got to you know we got to find him and he's already dead and it was and oh, wow. it was this like sh- it was a hugely shocking moment it was this gigantic you know yeah. for an 8 year old 9 year old at the time you know who who you know was used to american cartoon fare that was huge yeah. and the fact that they actually showed the back of his uniform because he changed out of his flight suit it was his uniform jacket so he didn't actually oh, see wow. holes in it but it was soaked in blood was you didn't see blood in the cartoons, right? Like nobody, nobody bled, right? Like, like, oh my god, you know that just didn't happen, and that's you know carryover from anime, mm-hmm. which was never saddled with the idea that comic books are for kids and right. cartoons are for children, and so that was to a Japanese audience that was like, well, no, he died the way the samurai hero does, you know, when it's the mentor figure, that's that's the trope, that's right? How it yeah, but it was revolutionary. Being brought over into the context of sure. what we were seeing over here, and so you know that was that was an example of the kind of eye-opening experience I had as a kid seeing all this stuff for the first time. Mm-hmm. And you know, we talked about crummy ninja movies mm-hmm. that were being made by Canon Studios here in the states. Yep, um, and also Jim Cotta. Yeah. The skill of gymnastics. God. The kill of karate. Oh. Ow. That just hurts. Just hearing that just hurts. So, it's such a goddamn crappy movie. My God. Anyway, <laughs> um, so so we talk about, you know, the, the schlock that was being put out, uh, you know, in terms of it's a ninja movie. We're going to make money on this, right. you know, here in the States. And the thing is, I was at that time seeing... Not just Americanized Japanese media, right? But if you clicked the dial on the on the turn crank cable box on top mm-hmm. of our TV set, I don't remember what channel number it was, but we were getting stuff that was coming directly out of NHK mm-hmm. studios in Japan. So I was not only seeing anime that had been redubbed and repackaged for an American audience. I I had the mind warping experience as a nine year old of actually seeing Japanese made samurai movies, Japanese made okay. ninja movies, and there was a series that sticks with me to this day. While I was researching for this for these episodes, uh-huh. I wanted to try to find it because um, while we had the master. Uh-huh. Being made here in the United States, which was just complete schlock, and they had to have a comedy sidekick and all this stuff. There was a ninja series that was more of a murderous soap opera. Okay. That I that I wound up because <laughs> my my dad was probably less vigilant about what it was I was being allowed to see at sure. age nine or ten than maybe he should have been because he wanted to watch it. And what I remember about it was there was a a male protagonist, a female protagonist. They were both ninja. Mm-hmm. And you know every and, and it wasn't it, it was it was a relative each episode was relatively long compared mm-hmm. to TV, American TV drama and they weren't always working together 
Okay. But they weren't always working against each other. It was it was I mean, this is my recollection sure. thirty five years later. But but I remember vividly that the female protagonist's signature move mm-hmm. was when she had gotten her victim into a position of helplessness one way or the other. She had a cord mm-hmm. that she wore around her neck. Okay. That she would take off and she'd wrap around her victim's neck. And then she'd take one of her hair needles oh, wow. out of her out of her hairdo, and and thrust that through through his neck through the neck, uh-huh. and that was that was her signature move. And there was more nudity than I probably should have been seeing as a nine year old. That was probably part of the reason my dad liked it as much sure. as he did, you know. And and so, you know, th- this this level of fascination that our culture had as a whole. Yeah, I really was the microcosm of, you know, right. Because I, I, I really, you know, um, early it, adopter. I really was, and and in another timeline, I, I turned into one of those guys who gets uh, uh, denigrated as being a weeaboo mm-hmm. online because I really, I mean, really, I was looking at this stuff and it was eye opening. It was amazing and it was shocking and it was, you know, all this, all this stuff. Uh huh. And. Um, I have carried with me ever since then a fascination with Japanese history. Mm-hmm. And I have carried with me ever since then uh, an interest in Japanese cinema mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to find the title of the ninja drama I just referenced. I wound up wasting another hour and a half, fell down an internet rabbit hole. <laughs> uh, and, you know, what I what I came up with uh, was actually a couple of really good Japanese film and ninja fandom blogs I'm going to have to use for future research. <laughs> um... But what's interesting, getting getting all of this back to what we're here to talk about, mm-hmm. Battletech itself yes. is an Americanization of the Japanese-developed giant robot genre. Okay? Okay. Transformers right. is an Americanization of the giant robot genre. Right. Obviously, Voltron, which started out as a Japanese series, is an right. Americanization of this, this whole... And so Battletech actually took the design elements and, in at least one case, the names of the robots in the game uh-huh. directly out of Japanese series. Uh, the Shadowhawk mm-hmm. battle mech, which was iconic in the first edition, showed up on the back cover of one of the books, on one of the box covers somewhere. Mm-hmm was this uh, fairly kind of square-looking body, mm-hmm. had kind of swoopy-looking shoulders, okay. had a very box-like-looking cockpit. Clearly, the head was a cockpit kind, uh-huh. of, kind of head. And it had like a tank cannon on one shoulder. That's a Thor. Uh, well, the, the Thor is a later development. Okay. But, but the the Shadowhawk, mm-hmm. not being an Omnimech, looked more human. Okay. Had had its body had a more human set of proportions, and uh, it had you know a laser on one arm that had fins on it, swoopy you know Japanese animation kind of details on it, and so that for example was taken straight out of like lifted completely Uh whole cloth from uh, a Japanese series called Fang of the Sun Dugram. Okay. Which, doing a little research about that series, it's a remarkably gritty, uh, you know, semi-post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. You know, all the themes that we've talked about as far as what's in Battletech 
Fang of the Sun Dogram does that, and it uh-huh. talks about war in a way that American cartoons never would. Right. You know, um, it's it's part of the, the subgenre called real robot. Okay. Um, the Valkyrie from Robotech, the transforming, mm-hmm. you know, looks like kind of an F-14 Tomcat. Right, and then it gets legs. It, and it turns into a humanoid-looking robot. Right. The Valkyrie was used as the basis of several different mechs. The Stinger, the Wasp, the Valkyrie, and the Crusader. Okay. So four different mechs in Battletech were the Valkyrie in different forms from the from the, the Macross uh-huh. film, then taken and and applied into the context of the tabletop working. Mm-hmm. Um, the Shadowhawk was one out of Fang of the Sun Do- Dogram. They also took several others out of that series. Mm-hmm. Most notably, two of my favorites, uh, the Battlemaster and uh, the Griffin were okay. also mechs that were taken directly out of that series and used in the game. Okay. This becomes important later on in the game's history when, uh-huh. um, <clears throat> of all people, Harmony Gold assholes responsible for producing Robotech. Okay. I say assholes because I love Robotech but I hate the company that was responsible for producing it because they were more than anything else patent trolls. Uh. And they sued FASA, mm-hmm. the game company who produced Battletech, saying we own the rights to distribution of these images outside of Japan. Right. And they pointed to a contract they had. And FASA said, well, yeah, we got the rights to these images from these guys. Mm-hmm. And then they had to go to a Japanese court. And the Japanese court determined, no, FASA, sorry, the guys you got the rights to didn't actually have them to give to you and so we have a whole category of mechs Mm -hmm. that were part of the very first edition of the game Mm -hmm. that were turned into what we fans refer to as the unseen okay because all of the imagery had to be scrubbed oh wow from publications going forward and they had to find artists to create new right new stuff that matched the stats but wasn't the original artwork and had to be substantially different from the original artwork right and it sucked hmm. i mean by comparison because because the, the the original the original designs were just so powerful and iconic sure and and looked so cool and the new stuff was a kludge and just wasn't right didn't work and on that level it's really awesome to note that um there have been new agreements reached between the people who now own the rights to Battletech and people and the original people who own the rights to mm-hmm. uh, Macross and the other series, and they are now creating new images that are closer to the originals that the rights holders are saying, yeah, you've changed it enough that we'll let it go. Cool. So I'm really excited that, you know, in the box set that I'm still waiting for, sets that I'm still waiting for. There are new models with the very much like the original designs of right. the Mecca, and it's a big deal to me. Cool. Um, so that's just that that encapsulates how much it is that BattleTech itself mm-hmm. is it was part of this development in the Zitgeist. Of this, right. We're we're deathly afraid of these people and we're intimidated by them and we don't like them because they're an economic threat and we're convinced they're gonna, you know, rise up right. and rule the world and they're doing it through economic means because we kicked their asses in a fair fight. Right. You know, I mean all that stuff that we heard growing up as kids. Sure, sure. 
and and yet at the same time we're obsessed with it and like oh my god they have they have all this stuff that's so cool right you know the 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 media that they were generating and and the stories that they were telling mm-hmm. were compelling because in a lot of ways there were things they were able to say uh-huh. that our media didn't let people who were making media for kids right you know do mm-hmm. and so it was it was sexy and right. it was and it was you it know, had an allure yeah. and it had an allure and so um so so BattleTech winds up being a yankification itself sure. of the giant robot genre and so you take these robots mm-hmm. you put them in this setting and you know we have noble houses and we have this interstellar right and right have all this stuff and um this is at the same time that you know at this point it had been almost 40 years since the end of world war ii mm-hmm. and this is the same point at which you mentioned in the very first episode we were uh-huh. talking about this about your teacher right having you guys read all the articles about you know the japanese are eating our lunch and they're this terrible yep. terrifying threat and all this stuff so we have that going on at the same time that enough time has passed since the war mm-hmm. that we're not viewing them the same way we did at the end of the war they're no longer necessarily that kind of enemy there's also you know, in 1988 yeah reparations start getting paid to japanese americans mm-hmm Yep. Signed by Reagan, by the way. Yeah, signed by Reagan. Mm-hmm. And um, m- the author of um, Farewell to Manzanar mm-hmm. came to my middle school mm. and gave and actually gave a talk to us about that. Cool. And um, <laughs> my mom, who lived in Michigan, mm-hmm. did not hear about Japanese internment until she moved to California. Well, yeah. In 1976. Yeah. Well, of course she didn't. Right. Because it it was it was a very big deal here. Right. But in Michigan, how many Japanese people were living there? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we could have a whole episode about internment and its relationship to one or another aspect of popular culture. Sure. Um, and, you know, now I've got to find something to tie it to because I'm sure there's something somewhere. <laughs> Because that's a story that needs to be related. Oh yeah. But when when she spoke to us, mm-hmm. um, I brought up reparations. Mm-hmm. I said, so you know, what what do you think about you know President Reagan signing this thing, saying that you know, there's going to be you know money paid out? We're sorry, and here's twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, and here's and here's twenty grand. Um, and and I mean, she she handled. My very smug child of Reagan Republicans question with, uh, I think, more uh, wisdom, understanding, and uh, patience than I deserved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so that was, sorry, that was part of, that was part of what was going on there. Sure. You know, uh, was, was our, our recognition that, hey, wait a minute, we've got these people living in our country too. Yeah. You know, um, and so there's really almost no way mm-hmm. when you when you take all of that into account and you take into account what BattleTech was and where BattleTech came from. Uh-huh. It's almost impossible to imagine that there would be any uh, any any main antagonist other than 
House Kurita. Right. Who represented pre-World War II. Right. Japan. Um, it's, it's interesting to note that for me, looking at the Battletech materials when I was in middle school, when uh-huh. I was 12, 13, looking at them going, have I got, you know, 20 bucks to spend on, you know, these source books and this stuff and whatever, and what mm-hmm. am I going to spend it on? Which the answer always was D&D at that phase. Uh, but you know, I, I read through all of them in the game store mm-hmm. obsessively. Um, but you know, you, you think about it, the, the parallel that I always drew uh-huh. as a 12 year old wasn't to anything in current culture. I looked at it and I saw it looking back on what I knew about world war two. Makes sense. And it didn't occur to me at the time that Steiner wasn't a, a totalitarian state. And it didn't occur to me at the time that Lao was clearly right. a Sino-Soviet thing. Right. You know, I saw World War... I, I saw the British Empire. Yeah. You know, and I saw Germans. I didn't really know enough to know the nuances of what that right. was historically right. as far as what they were emulating there. Uh, you know, and then I saw pre-World War II Japan, which I knew something about because by the time mm-hmm. I saw that, I was 12. I had spent time, mm-hmm. you know, earlier in my childhood, right? you know, seeing uh, stuff coming out of Japan, mm-hmm. which, you know, never talked really bluntly about the, the pre-war period, but talked about a period long before it right you know, the the samurai movie is the japanese version of the western right you know and so i mean i i knew some things about the black dragon society and all that stuff and so there's really no other way mm-hmm. that with something that was itself born out of this fascination with japanese culture mm-hmm that was mingled with our fear of they're going to eat our lunch. Right. What the hell are we going to do? How about we build a better car? No, no, we can't do that. You know, that's not, that's not no. the problem. You we know? who are in charge of the economy got here on these rules, so we're going to mm-hmm. make sure these rules are the only rules that ever matter. Yeah. Yeah. And so for the first half decade mm-hmm. of the Battletech property's existence, the truly heavy, heavy – Ah, pardon me, the truly threatening heavy mm-hmm. was Takashi Kurita, okay. the coordinator of the Draconis Combine, mm-hmm. and not uh, Maximilian and then Romano Lau, who were the heads of, of House Lau, obviously. Right. And they played the part of the scheming but always inevitably beaten villains mm-hmm. who would make a temporary gain, sure. uh, would twirl their mustaches, you know, threaten to torture and kill you know, beloved characters in the novels and whatever. And then in the next game supplement, you'd find out that uh, Merrick, because Lau had territory between uh, Merrick and Davian. Okay. And uh, so you'd find out that they they got stomped, uh-huh. uh, you know, by by Merrick or, sure. or by Davian. Sure. Uh, and in one of the first uh, major rollouts for mm-hmm. the game, one of the first major plot advancements that happened in the game, um, there was actually an alliance formed mm-hmm. between House Davian and House Steiner, who who did not share a border. 
Okay. If you look at the map of the galaxy, uh-huh. they were on opposite sides of Earth. Earth was okay. the center. They were on opposite sides of the inner sphere. Okay. They formed an alliance. The ruler of Davian married the daughter of the ruler of Steiner. Okay. And uh, it the, all all of the heads of the great houses were invited to the wedding, and. Because, you know, diplomacy being diplomacy, even mm-hmm. though you have people fighting each other at the top level, you know, you we're, have all to get along. Same, we're all from the same class after all. Right. And um, it was it was a, a moment that when my friends and I read the novels, my mm-hmm. buddies were like, oh my God, such a burn, was uh, Hans Davian, Hans the Fox Davian, uh-huh. um, uh, said to his new bride, uh, my love, uh, as your wedding present, I give you the Capellan Confederation. And that was the line that, that then got sent out through hyperpulse generator across space to the Davian military, mm-hmm. who had secretly been massing along the border and launched the biggest invasion in a hundred years. Okay. And within a month, by the time the next game supplement came out to right. follow that novel... Um, Half to two thirds of uh-huh. Lao had been overrun by Davian because okay. you know, yeah. By this time, we were used to the Cold War, and you know, we'd figured it we'd out. We'd figured it out. Yeah, you know. And meanwhile, mm-hmm. the fighting on the border with Curita, which was the other power that Davian actually had a border with, uh-huh. and which Davian and Steiner both had borders with. Okay, because Curita was a big territory. Um. The fighting was much more intense and much more much more difficult, and okay. it didn't make as much progress because you know all of the Curita warriors were motivated by Bushido. Right. The, you know they we're not, not going to give we're surrender. not going to give an inch of ground. We're never going right. to surrender. You know all of those tropes. Right. And you know and so for the first five years mm-hmm. or more of the game, yeah, about five years, um, that's that's just what it was. Okay. And so. You know, it, it was it was only in a conversation with a friend of mine earlier this year mm-hmm. and tail end of last year that I finally really made the connection that led to me thinking of this being something to talk about. Here. Sure. Because, again, in my childhood, all of this was the water that I was swimming in. Mm-hmm. And so now, I mean, it's kind of obvious. You know, to, yeah. look, to look back on it becomes obvious. You know, it's like the pattern suddenly resolving itself on the wallpaper. To, to bring up an analogy that I've I've used before. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty much kind of what I've got yeah. left. Um, this is probably going to this is going to wind up being a bit short. That's okay. Uh, but what 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 do you think? What do you take away there from this? Well, I'm I'm curious as to honestly, I'm curious as to what the newer editions do. Because there's a desire to keep the old structures, to keep mm-hmm. the old fan base. Yeah. But, you know, like, um, I don't know, the Japanese of the 80s mm-hmm. um, were the Arabs of the 90s. Okay. In movies, you know. Yeah. Um, and the, you know, the so just like you, you always have a shift. Uh, you know, so I'm curious as to how it grows this time. Um, it makes perfect sense that yeah they uh, again you know any 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 game system is in some ways a snapshot in time yeah any movie any any book any TV show they are snapshots in time yeah they are of the time that they are made yeah invariably 
Like they, yeah. they just are. They're either a reaction to it or a reflection of it. Okay. And so you have that happening. Um, and at that point, the, the Soviet Union was on its way down. Mm-hmm. We didn't see that. I mean, no, we did. The, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union <clears throat> was a shock to the oh, CIA it was a, that it was, was there. a huge surprise, yeah, to everybody. But at the same time, their threat... Except the Soviets. Yeah. The only people who weren't surprised were the Soviets <laughs> themselves. But their their threat profile, if you will, was certainly on the way down because of the Helsinki Accords, because mm-hmm. of the... Salt not just trees, the yeah. reductions in... The, yeah. the actual uh, moves. And China as a threat was less of a, an issue because... They were starting to realize, well, I mean, you know, Mao had died in 75, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were wanting to be economic Dang, players in the world. They had taken over. They wanted to be yeah. economic players. It is glorious also to get rich. Yeah. You know. So, um, so it makes sense that the Japanese, on the other yeah. hand, <clears throat> because the one way that America, because nobody could challenge America's uh, military might. No. Economically, we were still vulnerable, and that had been shown as early as '73. Yeah, um, which interestingly also is um, after we're, we've been in Vietnam for eight years. Yeah, turns out that's very costly. So yeah, yeah. remarkable how expensive <laughs> foreign war of attrition against a Fabian opponent could be. Yeah, um, very well put. Well, you know, and I can and I can I can kind of tell you. Mm-hmm. I, well, not kind of. I can tell you where they went. Uh-huh. And, and it's interesting because it also ties into our perceptions of the Soviet Union. Okay. So here's the thing. We uh-huh. have House Lao, right? Okay. House Lao, as I've said, I've set this whole thing up this whole time. Mm-hmm. And here's where I flip you. Mm-hmm. They are the Sino-Soviet alliance. Uh-huh. And they're the also ran the punching bag. Right. So in 1989, mm-hmm. um, a new trilogy of novels gets released called The Blood of Kerensky. Okay. Now you remember we mentioned the name. Kerensky. He went off. He disappeared. Took all the armies into the depths of space outside of the inner sphere. Right. Well, he came back. Oh, good. Well, actually, he didn't come back because it had been several hundred years. He was long dead. Uh huh. But while he had been gone, mm-hmm. he had established an entirely new society. Okay. With the warriors in that society at the top of the pecking order. Uh huh. And everybody else in a. Very centrally controlled, Mm -hmm. very socialist kind of social order, Mm -hmm. and in which um, individuals, uh, in order to build their population after a couple of generations of living in difficult conditions on barely habitable planets, um, they started actually combining genetic material from people and uh, having babies born in iron wombs. Wow. Because this is science fiction and we can do this. Right. And so the members of the elite warrior cast of the society mm-hmm. look down on anybody who is a freeborn. Right. Whose parents just, you know, did it, did it. and didn't right. have any planning behind. Because those who were born out of an iron womb, they were planned. Right. And then they were raised in a Sibco sibling cohort. Okay. With a number of other, you know, yeah, other, a other pod. folks. And they live their entire youth uh-huh. uh, constantly being trained and tested. And if you don't pass the tests, you fall out of the warrior caste into another caste. You get directed 
into another part of society where we determine what your strengths are and we push you in that direction to to forward the interests of the clan. So there is the Israel. Clans, well, sort of. Yeah. Except think about what our perceptions were and what we got taught about what it was like to grow up in the Soviet Union. Yeah, oh, that's a good point. And then all of a sudden they showed up mm -hmm. in the inner sphere with tech that was, you know, 500 years, 300 years ago was the most advanced thing anybody had ever had. Uh -huh. And then instead of falling into a dark age, they had been building on it and developing it ever since. Right. And so they showed up with Omnimex, mm -hmm. your Thor, the Vulture, the Loki. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Those, the Mad Cat. Those are the Mad Cat. Those and... The Sunder and the, the yeah, Avatar. Those are the product of clan oh, technology. Okay. And so they show up and they beat the crap out of everybody they run into. Uh -huh. And it turns out after initial contact, what everybody figures out is their goal is they're going to reconquer earth and they're going to bring everybody into a new star league following the socialist collectivist mm -hmm. heavily controlled from the top down. Okay. Authoritarian model of the clans society. So that was in 89. When that was in 89. That was okay. in 89. And, and here's the thing, mm -hmm. the parallel I want to make here is mm -hmm. they show up, they have this society where, you know, the individual gets directed all their lives into the direction they want to go. Uh, -huh. uh they are able to, if, if they excel enough, <coughs> if they are, you know, in, you know, if, if, if they are excellent enough, mm -hmm. They can, you know, if, if you're born not into the warrior caste, you can test into the warrior caste. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're if you're if you're good enough and determined enough, you train hard enough, you can do it. But um, if you're a warrior, the biggest thing you can do is earn yourself a blood name. Okay. You have to be genetically descended from somebody, and you have to then. There's only a certain number of people who are allowed to carry the honorific of a given last name. Is there a book titled Blood Names? Yes. I yes. remember selling that. Yes. And so as a clan warrior, uh -huh. the most prized blood name, which belonged to Clan Wolf, was Kerensky. Okay. And thus Blood of Kerensky being the title of the first right. trilogy of the novels. Now, of course, Kerensky was a Russian general yeah. you know, at the dawn of the Soviet Union. Yeah. And, and so the... House Lao, the Capellan Confederation, uh -huh. was a, a cartoonified, you know, we kind of knew that the Soviet Union was on the way down. Right. Subconsciously, we kind of knew, even though it shocked us when, when the system fell apart. Sure, sure. But, you know, we, we had started to not see them as that much of a threat. But at the mm -hmm. same time, we still had this underlying fear of, you They'll know, be back. what the hell are they going to yeah. do? They might be back. Oh, God. And so then the clans. Right were the Soviet Union we feared. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting that I kind of want to point out is under Reagan, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, mm -hmm. uh, published a, a series of books uh, for several years running that was uh, Soviet Military Power. Mm -hmm. you familiar with this? Mm. Keep going. It was, it was a brilliant work of something between... Uh, defense intelligence analysis mm -hmm. and propaganda. 
Okay. Where they would take actual numbers of okay, the Soviets have this is they, they'd have a oh, section. Oh yeah, that they would cook be the books on like tank tank power. Well, right. Here's the deal. It's it's more subtle than cooking the books. Mm-hmm. They didn't actually lie about the numbers. What they did was they <laughs> massaged the context. Yes. So here's the deal. Our our military doctrine, mm-hmm. air land battle, which sure. I studied being in ROTC my first two years of college. Air land battle mm-hmm. basically says these are the conditions under which we want to get into a fight. Uh-huh. And the thing is, <laughs> we we didn't want to get into a fight with the Soviets because one of the biggest things is we don't want to get into a fight unless we have a numerical superiority. Right. We were never going to have numerical superiority over Soviet ground forces. No. So we spent Skillions. I mean, mm-hmm. I could, like imaginary numbers of sure. money to develop things that would give us force magnification that would that right. would help us make up for that. Give us the, the slingshot against Goliath. Yeah, the M1 Abrams tank is a mm-hmm. perfect example of that. It was designed to be mm-hmm. able to fire on the move with a gun that would fire around that could punch through anything right. that Russians were able to make armor-wise. It was given armor. That was it was built with armor that was built out of out of materials that were so high tech they codenamed it kryptonite. I mean, mm-hmm. Like seriously, yeah. it it was a battle mech. I mean, right. it was this. And when I was in ROTC, that's what I wanted to do was be the driver, well, the commander of a platoon of those sure. tanks. That was like it, because there was no way I was going to walk into combat like a goddamn <laughs> But anyway, I wanted air conditioning. <laughs> goddamn. Um, and so. We spent all this time and all this effort mm-hmm. trying to get this technological edge. Well, the thing was, um, the DIA mm-hmm. put out these 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 books right. that said, "Okay, look, the Russians have these hordes right. of all these missile launchers, and they have these hordes of T-60s, mm-hmm. these hordes of T-72s, and here are the stats on the T-72, and holy shit, it's got all these guns." Right. Well, here's the thing. Oh, and, and the example that I love mm-hmm. being the child of, of a Navy man, uh, they would they would look at Soviet naval power and they'd say, Soviet cruisers have five missile systems. Right. And this Soviet cruiser carries, you know, 102 mm-hmm. missiles. I'm making up a number. Yeah, it would yeah, be yeah. This gigantic number. And ours carry 64. Right. You know, we've our, our Aegis cruisers carry, you know, 64, you know, missiles. Sure. Well, here's the deal. The Russians carry 102 missiles because when they pull the trigger, two out of three aren't going to fire because right. they can't reliably build the electronics to make it work. Right. So they look like they're hideously overgunned. Right. But in point of practical fact, in the hopes that have, one of their we, guns will work. We have near parity. Yes. You know, and they have more ships than we do, but more of our ships are running at any given time because right. theirs are hangar queens. If you go based on tonnage, they got yeah, us beat. They have us way beat. If you go based if you on go by functional tonnage, right. we are winning hands down. Right. And another classic example mm-hmm. is the MiG Fox Bat. Mm-hmm. Uh, was a terrifying interceptor. Remember. Mm-hmm. Cold War strategic bombing was part of our overall plan. If, if, right. if the balloon went up, we had you know strategic bombers constantly circling mm-hmm. for you know five minutes warning they could go into Soviet territory. So interceptors as a defense were a big deal. Sure. And the Russians showed off the Fox Bat, and, and it was this big, long-looking, right. huge engines on it, swept uh, uh, variable wing mm-hmm. uh, geometry, you know. 
and it looked like everything we were able to build. Right. You know, and it could hit, we knew it could hit like Mach 4, uh-huh. Mach 5. Super fast. Yeah, amazingly fast. Um, and so for the first couple of years it existed, for the first five or six years it existed, we were terrified of it. Sure. Until a Soviet pilot defected with one. He landed it in Japan. Oh. And our technicians <laughs> took it apart. Mm-hmm. And they found out that all of its electronics, this mm-hmm. is in the 1970s, were still using vacuum tubes. So not transistors. Not transistors. Right. And and by that time, the very first microchips were a thing. Right. And we were using them like everywhere because, oh my God, miniaturization, cutting down weight, all that stuff, especially radiation. But no, they didn't even have transistors yet. Their radar systems weighed eight times wow. what ours did. Okay. And their resolution was not anywhere near what ours was. Sure. They never managed to figure out how to build a jet engine that didn't smoke enough that a blind man could see. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we got we got sold this line okay. and we believed this line. Right. That's the whole reason I'm bringing this up is is our perception was, you know, they they you know, think about Rocky Four. Right. Ivan Drago. Yeah. Right? Genetically engineered mm-hmm. super boxer. If he dies, he dies. He dies. That that was part of our perception of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. of, of Soviet communism. Soviet right. Communism, which wasn't really. But, you know, and and so that's what they did. Was, in the end, it still wound up becoming the Soviets, but it wasn't the real Soviets. It uh-huh. was what we, what the Soviets we were afraid of. Right. Was the Soviets of our, our nightmares. Of our nightmares. So, here we are. It's almost 2019. Yeah. Uh, by the time this launches, it's going to be 2020. 20. <laughs> uh, with, but, with the speed with which we're putting them out. Yeah. Um, but uh, either way, um, who's the bad guy now? Is it some sort of zealous religious order? No. Well, or is yes, it... actually, yes. It's the word of okay. Blake. Okay. Um, the the pseudo-religious mm-hmm. uh, tech priests... Okay. Of who maintained the interstellar communications network, uh-huh. um, wound up um, uh, instigating within their own ranks. There was a coup by a group of like real religious zealots uh-huh. uh, who wound up plunging the whole galaxy into darkness by shutting down all the HPG generators. Okay, which is how messages get sent between planets at faster than the speed of light. Uh-huh. And so that led to widespread anarchy, bloodshed, and the sword of Blake. Oh, Blake being okay. the prophet of Comstar, um, having having then seized power. So yes, as a matter of fact, okay. For a moment, I was going to say, well, no, it's a little bit more, and then no, it's <laughs> no, you're you're pretty much spot on. <coughs> okay, so my prediction is that we're going to see the Davian House crumble from within. Uh, having listened too much to a uh, horrible populist leader uh, that excites the worst instincts in all uh, Clan Davian people. We can hope. Yeah. That's that's not... Clan Davian, or House Davian, rather, no. has not, has not uh, yet uh, gotten taken over by a populist. They're still pretty royalist. But, okay. But we'll see. Yeah. Anything is possible. Okay, or someone from the royal family who claims to be just like the rest of us. 
Um, yeah. But, oh, yeah. 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 And then all the colors will change to orange. Um, <laughs> and then... <laughs> So that weird, that would be weird, my prediction. Weird rotten kumquat kind of orange. Weird, <laughs> Smell like a jackfruit. Mm-hmm. So, well, cool. Okay. Um, I guess my my last question would be this: yeah. um, How the hell did any of that jibe with what I sold people at Virtual World? And what I mean by that is. Um, was what I was doing at Virtual World, and you played there yeah. as well, was what we had at Virtual World in any way supposed to be connected to the fiction of the thing? Or is it just, we can market it, we can play, have people play this way, it's an early land party kind of thing, and you know, that, and that, that's it, that's it. Pretty much. Okay. It's the second one, more than anything else. Okay. The, the, the brilliance of going to play at Virtual World was um, you had you had all of that stuff, like you knew all of that stuff in the background. You knew about the clan invasion. Uh-huh. You knew that the mech you were climbing into was the absolute bleeding edge of battle mech technology. Oh, okay. You know, and, and you knew all of that, mm-hmm. and it was, okay, well, you know, we're wearing these colors, they're wearing these colors, fight. And right. And we go back to... The very beginning box set, mm-hmm. you know, and and this is all a rationale to have your toy soldiers shoot sure. each other. Sure. Um, so yeah, it, it, there wasn't really the experience at Virtual World mm-hmm. had the advantage of all of that backstory being there, but you didn't have to carry that around at all on your shoulders right. as a thing. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah. All right. Well. Thank you. Uh, it's, uh, I've Oh, actually, I did have one other question. Okay, what? There was a role-playing game that came out. Called Mech Warrior. That was another one. Okay. Mechton Zeta. Oh, okay. <laughs> when I talk about the giant robot genre, uh-huh. I can talk about Mechton and Mechton Zeta. Because Mechton Zeta and Mechton and Mechton 2, which came mm-hmm. before it, uh, which I played <laughs> all of them a lot. Uh, were much more closely tied to the original anime roots of the giant robot genre. Okay, they're much more tied to uh, Mobile Suit Gundam. Okay, and and yeah, uh, Super Dimensional Fortress Macross. Okay, and and those those elements of the genre than to this Yankee-fied Western kind of thing. Okay, so everything about that system is much more anime. Okay, uh, whereas Mech Warrior is Mech Warrior is a is a role-playing game where eventually, at some point, you climb into a mech and and shoot at other giant robots. Mech and Zeta is no, no. The giant robot is the whole point. Your character outside right. <laughs> of that is just you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, thank you uh, for uh, Geek History of Time. I am Damien Harmony, and I'm Ed Blaylock. And here's hoping that every one of your internal hits generates a critical. <laughs>